Will you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for the gift of an inheritance that we can't fathom, that we can't wrap our minds around. Lord, we're grateful also for the down payment for that inheritance that is here and with us now by your Spirit. Lord, the things that you have given to us in Christ are immeasurable, and we are grateful. Amen. So the, the people who put our lectionary together did a great job. But because of constraints, largely of time, every now and then you get a reading that feels like you just got dropped into the middle of a conversation with no context, right? For that which is of the flesh is hostile to God, right? Like, that's a pretty, that's a pretty uh, blunt start. So what I want to do is I want to go back and read Romans 8, but starting from verse 1. And that's actually also going to feel like you got dropped in the middle of a conversation with no context, but at least there's a little bit more. So this is Romans 8, chapter 1. Nope, verse, chapter 8, verse 1. And then I'm just going to read through the rest of our passage one more time because I want us to hear it one more time. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness." If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. This chapter is one of those peaks of the New Testament. It's beautiful and it's powerful. And so when a passage like this gets assigned to you in the lectionary, a lot of times you don't even want to preach it. Like you'd rather just stand up and read it a few times and then sit back down so you don't mess it up. One of the things that makes, I mean, Romans as a whole, but especially chapter 8 so astounding, is this really unique point in history that Paul sees that he is in. He's writing to a church in what the world would see as the most powerful city in the history of the world. And it's made up... This, this church that's in that city, this church in Rome, is made up of Jews and Gentiles, people who for centuries would never have seen themselves together. 
And so, so much of Romans, and so much of Romans 8 even, is about trying to figure out what it means for Jews and Gentiles to be together as they follow Jesus. And so to set the table for this passage that we just read, we need to see how Paul in particular sees one word as a kind of window into this unique place in history, this unique place in time. And that word is law. If we're going to understand the full weight of the passage and the full weight of where Paul is going, we need to get a glimpse of what Paul means when he talks about the law. We need to be able to see the law as more than just a list of God's favorite behaviors, more than just the things that God prefers that people do. So we've got to remember that for about 15 years up to this point, belonging to Israel by keeping the law was the only way that God had given sinful humanity to be in his presence. So the law is a big deal. So the law was this detailed instruction that God gave to Israel for teaching them how to live as his people in his presence, in this land that he had promised to them. And that law reminded them, among other things, that they didn't have any holiness or purity of their own. They'd been made holy because their God was holy, but they also needed to be continually made holy and pure because they didn't have a holiness or purity in themselves. Because like us, they were sinners. It also gave them steps that they needed to follow so they could receive that from God, so they could live in light of the fact that he, as a holy God, was making them holy, so they could be as unholy and impure people in his presence, so they could enjoy the fruits of the inheritance that he offered. That's what the law taught them. It taught them how they could come before this holy God. So we have a tendency when we hear the word law to think law bad, grace good, like they're inherently opposite to each other. But the law was a gift given to Israel, and it was a gift of nearness. The law taught Israel the only way that God had given humanity to be in his presence, the only way that God had given humanity to belong to him. Every other way of life, any way of life outside the law, any pursuit outside the law, was trivial, was meaningless. Because there was no other way to be in that God's presence but through that law. No other way to find joy or satisfaction in him, the only one who can give ultimate joy and satisfaction. So that's why when Israel would wander away from that law, when they would wander into disobedience, he would call them back with words like what we read in Isaiah 55. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good, and delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear and come to me, hear that your soul may live. Everything else, everything outside of the law that God had given them, would just be the pursuits of the flesh, the pursuits of desire. But all of that would just end in death. It was just exile. The problem, though, and this is the same problem that we run into, is that Israel wasn't able to keep that law, just as we're not able to keep that law. So the law, yeah, it showed Israel what sin was so that they could know what it meant to actually do the things that pleased their God. But the law was never able to actually empower Israel to overcome that sin. That's what Paul means when in 8, chapter 3, he says the law was weakened by the flesh. Or in verses 7 and 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. 
When Paul talks about the flesh here, he's not talking about, like, having a body. When he says flesh, he means living in this corrupted, sinful human nature. Because of that flesh, because of that nature, we are not, we don't have the power to keep the law that God has given. That's a huge problem. Because like we said, on the one hand, anything outside that law means that you are outside of the way that God had given to be near him and in his presence. Or if you want to sum that up the way that Paul does in Romans 6, the reward for that sin is death. It's not because the law was flawed. It's easy for us to hear some of the things that Paul says and think, again, law bad, as though somehow a good God just didn't get it right the first time. A good God gave a sort of good law. It wasn't that the law was flawed. It's just that the law was not the end. Yes, it showed what God required, and it taught Israel the ways that God would make himself near to them. But the law also showed that there was a need that was still unmet. There was a need for transformation, a need for restoration. So it pointed forward to that something greater that would have to come. And so now Paul, where he's writing here to the Romans, Paul knows that now he's standing at an utterly unique point in history because that thing, that historical event, that, that person that the law and that the prophets who, who explained the law had pointed to, he had arrived. Now that event has happened. And Paul knows that he's now standing on the other side of that. Because Jesus came, and he lived, and he died, perfectly fulfilling that law that Israel was never able to fulfill. And the beauty of it, this is part of what Paul is getting at here, is that Jesus didn't just fulfill the law for himself, then say, look, it's possible, and then leave. He rose from the dead, and he ascended into heaven, and he sent his spirit to fill his people. And that spirit joins his people so tightly to himself that Jesus' righteousness, Jesus' fulfillment of the law, is given to them so that his goodness and his faithfulness can become theirs. Remember, the law couldn't transform the hearts of Israel. It couldn't offer that once and for all sacrifice of forgiveness. It couldn't make them holy and pure once and for all. It wasn't able to overcome the sting of death and give life that would never end. It wasn't able to extend the presence of God to the nations. But Jesus did. And he offers all of those things that we just mentioned to us. And the one who applies that in our hearts is that spirit that he sent. Now that Christ has come, there is no law that can bring us into God's presence. It's only Christ. It's only by being joined to him that we can actually be near him. There is no life anywhere else. That's the only alternative to this life of utter slavery to the corruption of the flesh. So that right there is the setup for this fantastic passage that Paul gives us. Paul is is writing that the spirit of that faithful Jesus is now in us and with us which means that now Jesus' victory over sin and death is given to us. So that corruption that the will was not able, or sorry, that corruption that the law was not able to overcome in our hearts and in our wills, now we receive victory over those things because it belonged to Jesus. Remember Paul said, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Again, not Paul saying that living in a body is bad, but any of us who live in this sinful and corrupt nature, we're unable in our own power 
to please this good and holy and perfect God. But then he says, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. Because if the spirit is in you, in you, then he has actually joined you to Christ. If Christ is in you, then instead of that broken nature, that corrupt flesh, hurtling towards death, now you've received life and righteousness. And if that bondage is broken, then that sentence of death that was yours is transformed into new life. It says that he has even made us his children. Paul says, all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You've been joined to Christ by the Spirit, which means that now Christ's sonship is now yours. His Father is now your Father. His Spirit gives you the power to follow His ways in a way that you didn't have before. His inheritance is now your inheritance. This inheritance that's given to us in Jesus is so much more than any of the things that we could have gotten for ourselves. Access to the throne room of God, the privilege of being called God's child, resurrected eternal life, life forever in his presence. Paul's virtually screaming that this inheritance that's given to us is so much better than any of the things that we could get in our own power. So much better than any of the things that we could get through chasing the desires of our flesh, but also even so much better than anything that we could get by trying to modify our behavior to keep this law that God had given. Any Anything that we could do would fall drastically short. This inheritance could only be a gift. So Paul makes it really clear in the rest of this chapter that this inheritance, though, kind of has two sides to it. It's both present and future. So as chapter 8 unfolds, you're going to see that really the weight of this inheritance is something that lies before us. We will know it in its fullness when Jesus comes back. And we can feel the sense of that, that futureness, right? So all of us know the feeling of being freed from sin and yet still actually feeling its clutches, right? Feeling its grasp. So even joined by the Spirit to Jesus, don't you still feel the desires of the flesh waging war in you? I want a whole bunch of things that contradict each other. Like I can't even want one thing right at the same time. There's a war inside us because we still feel the, the, the clutch of that, the grasp of that. Freed from death, but we still feel... Pain, sickness, loss, grief. We still suffer. We're still going to see death. So we know that there's an inheritance that's on the other side of those things. But there's also something given to us now that is present. Present in the sense that God has given us a real current taste and experience of it. Remember, Paul is saying the Spirit is present with you now the spirit of the same God who is in the holy of holies in the temple. The spirit of that God is in you now. In Ephesians, Paul calls him a down payment. Not the fullness of the gift, but a real gift and a real present foretaste of that now. What he's saying is that what we have now, even that bit, is greater than what Israel had at the height of its glory with all the splendor of the temple, with the presence of God in the holy of holies. It's even better and more wonderful to have that spirit in you right now. And for Paul, it's important that he makes that clear, right? The futureness of the inheritance, but also that present taste. Because as he says in verse 17, the space between that present experience and that full inheritance is filled with hardship and filled with suffering. What he wants us to know is that even in the middle of that, the Spirit is still in us and with us. 
And he's joined us to the one, joined us to Jesus who has already walked through suffering on our behalf. And so he's with us too, even in the middle of that. Whether we are suffering for the sake of Christ or just suffering because we are broken people who are living in a broken world. Paul says this is true. We need that reminder because I think all of us are tempted to look to other sources of power than that spirit who is innocent with us. We're all tempted to look towards other sources of hope than that Jesus, especially when times are hard or maybe just when it feels like life isn't giving us all that we want from it. Maybe just in those times when it feels like life is falling short. So maybe that's because something like money or politics, success, whatever, maybe it's because some of those things feel like they are closer and realer power or sources of power than the Spirit. Like we can see them. So they feel real. We feel like we know how they work. And it might just be that those things are tempting because that looks like power that we can wield for ourselves rather than having to submit to the power of the Spirit. There's probably some allure to that. Or maybe, and I wonder if this is maybe even bigger, it's because those sources of power offer an inheritance that doesn't lie on the other side of suffering. It's an inheritance that is an alternative to suffering. So our hearts will gravitate towards those things instead of the power that is given by the Spirit because they're closer at hand or maybe just because it seems to promise that that suffering that we are looking at will get to bypass it. So in those places, God's call for us is the same as the one that he gave in Isaiah. Why are you laboring for things that can't give you what you need? Why are you chasing things that can't give you the life that you need? We live in a world, and we are people who have been corrupted by sin and by death. If any of our solutions to that problem come from the power of our own flesh, we will fall short. That ranges, again, from wholeheartedly chasing after our sinful desires to trying to build little kingdoms for ourselves to even trying to transform our behavior so that we can align ourselves with God's law. Any of those things done in our own power by our own wisdom will always fall short because that which is of the flesh cannot please God. The only thing in this life that can give us what we need is that presence and that goodness of God. Nothing else can save. Nothing else can heal you. Nothing else can satisfy you. Nothing else can empower you to hold those things that you ought to hold on to. But you don't have access to that presence in your strength or by your own power, by the things that you do, by your own will. It can only be a gift. But it is a gift that you have in abundance in Christ. So what do we do with that? So at first, when I was trying to sort of wrestle with this, I had a hard time figuring out what to do with it because the first movement of my heart was actually frustration. And the first movement of my heart said, I'm really tired of chasing after things that don't satisfy. I'm tired of standing up over and over again saying we shouldn't do that, but then still doing it. I'm tired of the constant disappointment of things that promise something good and never actually hold up their end of the bargain. I'm tired of knowing that these things are true and those things are lies, but still gravitating towards those lies, maybe even still chasing them. So the first movement in my heart was to respond to this by maybe trying to get us to try harder. 
Maybe if, if we said the same thing again, but we said it with feeling and in all capital letters, that like, we would actually get it right this time. And there is a sort of place for some discontentedness, right, with the sinful places of our hearts. We're not supposed to be complacent about that. But I wonder if maybe the best way for us to respond to this is not by trying to do yet more out of the power of our own flesh, but to hear one of these lines from Isaiah 55 one more time. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. So maybe instead the first movement in our heart shouldn't be to squeeze more out of the powers of our flesh, but to simply come empty-handed, knowing that we don't have any money to pay for what's been given to us, and to simply receive it with joy and gratitude, because it could only be a gift. Because we've been brought into this feast in the presence of God, and there's no charge. There's nothing that we can contribute to it, There's no level of motivation or fuel that we could kind of muster up in ourselves to get us there. It's just given. And all that we can do is receive. So how do we do that? If your heart feels anything like mine often does, mine sometimes feels like, you know, like a jar with a lid that's screwed on so tight you can't open it. That's how mine feels a lot of the time. Gratitude is not a thing that you can give to yourself. I think that's for sure. That's not a lid that you can open in your own strength. But it is something that we can ask for. We can hand that over to the Lord. And we can do the things that will help us to learn how to receive this gift that we could not get for ourselves. There are things that we could do that will help us to receive it with gratitude. So there's the regular, plain old spiritual disciplines of hearing God's word of prayer, of fasting, of worshiping together. Maybe we could even train ourselves to speak out loud to the Lord, but also to each other, of the things that he has done and the things that he has, the ways that he has shown himself to be generous. Maybe we could actually develop habits of speaking out of gratitude to each other. We could learn how to rejoice with each other in the goodness of God and in his gifts. Maybe we can actually learn how to celebrate those things together. In the end, though, this isn't something that we can do to ourselves. Like, we could do the sort of cognitive behavioral work to train ourselves to dwell more on the things that we're grateful for than the things that we're not grateful for, and that's good, and we should do that. But this undercurrent of gratitude that flows even underneath that, so like the kind of gratitude that lets you say, God's presence is enough, even if this or even through that, that kind of undercurrent of gratitude is not something that we can work out in ourselves. The good news, though, is that that work of transformation doesn't belong to us. And think back to the parable of the sower and of the soils. Soil can't change itself. It needs help. It needs a gardener to do that work in it. The beauty of this is that we don't actually have to be the gardeners of our own hearts. So if you feel like the soil of your heart is is rocky, like your faith is thin and your heart is hard, you know that you have a God who works that soil. If you feel like your soil in your heart is thorny, like you're being choked out by the desires of the world or the anxieties or the stresses of it, we've got this line in Isaiah 55, instead of the thorn shall come up the cypress. 
Instead of the briar shall come up the myrtle. The fruits of the fall that are in your heart, the corruption in your nature, the things that draw your attention away from the one who will give you everything, God will transform those things into things that are beautiful and good. That rocky soil where your faith is thin, your heart is hard. Isaiah 55 again. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. It's a word that is not overpowered by the rocky soil of our hearts. In fact, the word has already gone out and it hasn't failed. The word incarnate, Jesus, has already won victory. And the living water, the spirit of God, has already washed you and filled you, has already watered you. You have an inheritance before you that you cannot imagine. And whether you see it or feel it or not, you have the down payment of that inheritance in you now. You are not alone. So let's not labor for the things that can't feed us or satisfy us, but instead come without money and eat and drink at his table. And let's learn to rejoice. Thanks be to God. He's been incredibly good to us. Amen.